Amen. You guys may have a seat. If you'd like, go ahead and take your mask off. Uh, Good morning, everyone, here in person and online. Uh, Let me introduce myself. My name is Jordan. I'm the director of youth here at the shore. Uh, Let me start off giving you what you all really want, and that's some personal stories, okay? You want to hear about my personal life, and I'm going to tell you about some of the personal heartbreak that I've experienced. I'm going to give you all the juice, okay? Here we go. Most of my heartbreak has come from this one particular source, and, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, I've been in relationships with this source where I've been like, oh, this is incredible. This is, this is going to be amazing. This is going to take me to the promised land, only to have everything come crash and burn. Or I've been on the other side of that as well, where I've been like, okay, this is like, okay, it's not great. Oh, it's, it's getting a little bit better. This, this might actually be something only to have it once again go absolutely nowhere and fail me. Of course, you know what I'm talking about. It's my relationship with the Vancouver Canucks hockey team. All right? All right. Like, if you're a fan of the Canucks, you know that they've done nothing but break your heart again and again. And here's the thing about the Canucks, okay? Uh, I come from a hockey crazy family. So my two brothers, both my parents, between the five of us, we've seen every game in the existence of the Vancouver Canucks. And, And here's the thing, though we watch every single game, we all have vastly different opinions on what's wrong with the team. You know, so, so like myself, I come from a player's background, uh, a hockey player's background, not like a player, but um, a player's background. And so I'm like, what's most important in hockey is scoring goals. So let's not spend any money or very little money on goaltending and defense. Let's go out and get all the best offensive guys. Then there's like my older brother who was a hockey journalist for 10 years. Very good perspective. He's like, you know, we need more of a balanced lineup. And then there's my parents who are just like hardcore uh, Homer fans, I would call them, who think that the worst players on the Canucks are the best players in the league, right? So they they think like the worst guys are so good and they overvalue them so much. And then there's my younger brother, who probably has the best mind for all of this. He's very logical, very analytical, and he he always lays out exactly what they need to do. But my point is that we all watch the exact same games, but have completely different perspectives about what we're seeing. More on that to come. Hold that thought. So... There was an article in the newspapers in in the 1940s, all right? And it was basically a lost dog post. And it said, essentially, please help me find my lost dog. He has three legs. He has half of a left ear. He has a broken tail and only one eye. He goes by the name of Lucky. Like, what? What? And as we've been studying the book of 2 Corinthians, we've learned that many within this church in Corinth thought Paul's title of apostle, man sent from God, was just as laughable. So like a dog named Lucky, who has been all battered and beaten up, Paul was also battered and beaten up and didn't look very much like an apostle or someone sent from God. And we know, not not from the Bible, but from ancient Greek history books, I know you guys read those, we know from there what Paul looked like, and he really wasn't all that impressive to look at. He was um, a bald guy with like a kind of a patchy beard. He's said to have crooked legs. 
His nose was bent because he'd been beaten so much. Like he wasn't an impressive guy to look at. You could just see that he'd been through a mess of sufferings. And so this guy, Paul, who the Corinthians already didn't have a lot of respect for, had to explain to them something important, which we'll see today. And that is the cross that Jesus died on brings us a cross that ultimately we must carry as well. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well. But we are going to continue to see what we've seen for the last few weeks, that 2 Corinthians is an extremely personal and passionate letter that Paul is writing because of these experiences he's had with them where they have rejected his authority and looked down on him because of his physical appearance, appearance and the suffering he had endured. And they were like, this guy can't possibly be sent from God. Just look at him. And so let's see what he says here. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, it says this. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so when we pick things up here in verse 12, Paul is explaining about how he has left Ephesus and gone on to this town called Troas, which is right on the Aegean Sea or, or the Mediterranean. Uh, you could read more about this journey if you get into Acts 14 or Acts 20. Um, essentially, Paul went there to await news from Titus. Titus had gone to visit these very Corinthians to get an update from them to bring to Paul. And so Paul is waiting for him here. He's anxiously awaiting because he wants them to repent because we know, especially from 1 Corinthians, that this church had a lot of issues a lot of things that Paul was hoping they would address and eventually repent of. So, so that's the gist of what we see in verse 12 and 13, but when we get to verse 14, you'll notice that it looks like Paul takes off in a completely different direction. Let, let me explain why. In verse 14, Paul starts what ends up being a five-chapter tangent, a five-chapter parenthesis, which is ultimately going to explain the gospel for us as it relates to the difficulties in his life, which includes this restlessness that he has in Troas. So, so let me show you this. If you have your Bible, uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, in verse five, okay? We're gonna see him finally break out of this five chapter parenthesis and pick up this same story of him in Troas waiting for Titus. Second Corinthians 7, five, it says this. For even when we came into Macedonia, remember, that's where he went after Troas. Our bodies had no rest, 
but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus finally came. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So Paul finally concludes the story that he starts in chapter 2, verse 13, but leaves us in mystery for, for five chapters. Now, biblical scholars say that Paul uses this as a literary device to create suspense, uh, even though I just kind of gave you the ending there. Paul is anxiously waiting in Troas, awaiting the news from Titus that he didn't yet get, and how he deals with the restlessness he felt while he was waiting. This five-chapter tangent is going to explain for us. And what I would intend, uh, sorry, what I would contend as we go through these five chapters in the next few weeks, is that this text will explain your life and the restlessness and anxiety you feel as well. And so that's why I say we can be thankful for 2 Corinthians because it gives us the gospel in a way that helps us understand our struggles that we're dealing with. Now, something I I noticed when I was studying this week is that statistics have shown that in recent years, people living in North America who follow spiritual traditions within their families have gone way down. So like the notion that, let's say you grew up in a Catholic household and your parents were Catholic, so just because they were Catholic, I identify as Catholic now, that has gone way down. But instead what we're seeing is a large increase in the number of people who are branching away from tradition and instead seeking out life for themselves, trying to find purpose and meaning of of all of this that they're a part of. And so what I would contend is that although a large majority of people are searching for meaning and and seeking spiritual things outside of Jesus, the willingness in our world right now, the desires of the hearts of people to find true purpose is creating perhaps the greatest opportunity we as Christians have ever had to engage the world because people are more and more in pursuit of meaning and guess what? We have the meaning and purpose they're looking for for in Jesus Christ. And so I say, what a great time to be alive, to live where we live, to work where we work, to play where we play with the message of the gospel that we have. And ultimately, what a great time for us this morning to think about the question, how do we find meaning and purpose in this life that can oftentimes be so, so difficult? Because the Corinthians, like our culture today, man, they were offered all kinds of false spiritual hopes, things to find purpose and meaning in. And ultimately, they're, they're all going to fail them because there's only one true purpose. And, and so what Paul is going to show us here then is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, Yes, it is going to bring about some difficulty, some trouble, some sorrow, some affliction, but he's saying in the midst of all of that, we are going to find our meaning and our purpose. And so if verse 12 and 13, Paul talks about the difficult times that he is enduring, 
He reminds the Corinthians how hard things have been for him. He does that in an effort to set up the theme of the next few chapters, starting in verse 14. And and interestingly, as we get into verse 14, you'll notice that despite all of the burdens that he had, and if you know anything about Paul, it's a lot of burdens. It's getting beaten with sticks. It's getting stoned. It's getting shipwrecked multiple times. Despite all of that, he begins by rejoicing in God. Let me show you why. Verse 14. So despite everything that's happening, he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so what I want us to see in verse 14 this morning is that if you take up your cross, and by that I mean deny yourself, put to death your own selfish desires and replace them with following Jesus Christ, if you take up your cross, you will be able to make Jesus known in a way that is impossible if you do not take up your cross. And so by following him, by taking up your cross, it says that a fragrance fragrance of the knowledge of him will follow you everywhere you go. But you'll notice another big phrase mentioned in verse 14, and we're going to camp out here for a little bit. And that's that Christ leads us in triumphal procession. A triumphal procession. Doesn't that get you all like giddy and fired up? Like, yes, this celebration with Jesus. And it's a big statement he's making. And it's a picture we really need to understand culturally to feel the whole weight of. Because this term, triumphal procession, it's only used twice in the entire New Testament. Right here and in the book of Colossians. The whole phrase of leads in a triumphal procession actually comes from a singular Greek word, which is threembueo, uh, threembueo. Uh, and essentially what threembueo means uh, is it goes all the way back to not just the Roman Empire times, but, but pre-Roman Empire to what are called the Etruscan times. And it's a celebration that took place upwards of 300 times that we know of. What it looked like was basically a victory parade, right? where the Romans would be celebrating a huge victory in battle. And how it would look is the Caesar, the emperor, the ruler, would enter into this parade first, and he would be standing in a golden chariot pulled by four horses, or sometimes elephants, a grand entrance. He would be wearing a purple toga. He would be holding a scepter with the Roman eagle on it. Oftentimes, he would have his face painted red to imitate their false god, Jupiter, who they were going to offer sacrifices to shortly. Now, directly behind Caesar would be his key generals who helped them win that battle. And behind them, in a distance, on foot, naked, in chains, were the generals who opposed them. And sometimes even the king and the entire royal family of the opposition who had just been defeated. They would just be humiliated as they walked through the streets with thousands of people. And they would follow the Caesar, they would follow the generals, and they would be led right up to the pagan temple where an offering would be made to celebrate. And guess what the offering was? Yeah, it was the lives of the generals and and the royal family 
and the city would rejoice and celebrate this. That's a triumphal procession. That's what Paul's talking about. And this was something that was very familiar to the Corinthians. See, um, the triumph of Lucius, who was a Roman general, led what's famously known as the Sack of Corinth. So on this very city we're talking to here, the Sack of Corinth happened in 146 BC, and the triumphal procession that followed that is known to be the greatest spectacle the world had ever seen. And then more recently, in AD 51, about five years before this letter was written, the Roman Emperor Claudius led a massive triumphal procession to celebrate their triumph over the Britons. So they were very familiar with this idea. And so the question becomes then, how did this picture of a triumphal procession relate to Paul? Where was he in this parade? Well, the answer is not in that front chariot with the conqueror. It's, it's not even right behind on horseback with the generals. But rather, as one of the conquered captives following behind in chains, being led to death, and, and that's a bit of a, a shocking idea, right? Like, when you think about it, it becomes even more startling thinking about the implications of it all because we know that the conquered enemies at the back were being led to the temple to be a sacrifice to the Roman gods. So what you need to see is Paul viewed himself as a captive being led to death. That's how he viewed his life. And so picture this, okay? A triumphal procession a celebratory parade which always featured a conqueror at the front. And in our case, that's Jesus. Following behind him were the many captives, the enemies, people who, were, who betrayed him, people who were against him, being led to be a sacrifice as part of the spectacle. And, and Paul's purpose with this triumph metaphor is that Jesus is the great conqueror who leads all people who would lead the parade to the offering table. And when it's time for a sacrifice, he would say, whoa, no, 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 you stay there. I'll go on your behalf. So that all that is evil within you, all sin within you, all guilt within you, all of your flesh that opposes me will be defeated and you will be destined to spend an eternity with me in heaven. And so maybe you're thinking right now because it's a, it's a difficult picture to grasp. Maybe you're thinking like, if I'm following this metaphor correctly, then I follow Jesus as a captive at the back of this parade and historically those who were in the back are being led to death and ultimately am I being led to death? Well, the bottom line is this, that, that death is, is the meter, is the scale by which we follow Jesus because look what he says in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Understand that he is talking about death to your old self. 
Death to your own personal desires. Death to seeking all the wants and needs of your own flesh and exchanging them with a life that follows Jesus. And that life ultimately calls us to share in the sufferings of Christ by enduring affliction, by enduring sorrow and difficulty, being uncomfortable, all so that we might join in union with our Savior Jesus. And so therefore, suffering and ultimately death are reflections of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And we're gonna read that that is the very thing that God is going to use to make himself known to other people. So Paul's big point here with the triumphal procession is that his suffering, which is taking place in the terms of being led to death in this celebration, is the very means to which God is going to reveal himself to the entire world. Look at the second part of verse 14 here. So he says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So additionally, in a triumphal procession, they would light incense to be a part of the parade. So there'd be incense on the chariots, on the horses, and they would give off a scent that would follow them wherever they went. So that smell would go into the crowds, into the cities, everywhere they went. Not dissimilar to the way Paul lived his life. Everywhere that Paul went, you could just tell that this guy loved Jesus. Now, we know personally, at least I assume you do, that odors, scents, are intrusive, right? You can't control them. Have you ever been sleeping in your room and you just get a whiff of a skunk all of a sudden? You can't do anything about that. They are intrusive. And so when we ultimately deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus as he leads us in triumph, and as he ultimately takes our place as the ultimate sacrifice, the scent of his grace will follow us and linger behind us everywhere we go so that others might know him. And maybe it's hard to accept our place in in this triumphal procession, you know? Like, maybe it seems a bit contrary to how we want to be involved. Like, I know if it was up to me, I'd rather be, like, on that front chariot with Jesus. Or maybe even, like, right behind him on a horse. But that's just not the way it happens. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't rooted in our greatness. It's rooted in our weakness, so that we can see just how strong Jesus is. The gospel isn't that we have it all figured out and are living life perfectly. It's actually the opposite, that we haven't come close to figuring it out, that we cannot possibly live perfectly, but Christ loves us anyways and still died for us. And so to me, the idea of of a proud Christian is like the weirdest oxymoron I've ever heard in my life. It makes no sense. It's not about anything that you've done. It's all about what Jesus did. And honestly, that should be the most freeing thing you have ever heard because if you've ever tried to live life perfectly, surely you know that it's not possible and you need help and we need something more and we have that in Jesus. That's the gospel. And so the fragrance of that freeing grace that we have follows us everywhere we go 
so that we might display God's love and mercy to everyone. And so what we learn from verse 14 is that by choosing to follow Christ, we take up our cross, we deny ourselves, we put our old self to death, we follow him, and it is by that that Jesus is made known to others. Look at verse 15 with me. He goes on with this scent idea. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. See, in the eyes of the Greeks, many of the Corinthians who were reading this, the cross was a very foolish idea to them. Isn't that familiar today as well? But to those who are Christians, it's the power of God. And so Paul says in verse 15, as far as God is concerned, and ultimately, isn't that the only opinion that should matter? As far as God is concerned, when you take up your cross and take on the accompanying difficulties, whether it be physically, financially, emotionally, whatever it may be, Paul says, I am thankful for those things because my life is now giving off a sweet aroma which is pleasing to God and will lead others to know me. This way of living is pleasing to God and not only does it have an impact on how God sees us, but it has an impact on how other people see our lives and see God himself. He goes on, verse 16. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so, surely you know this if you've been a Christian for a while or even for a short time perhaps, when you make the decision to follow Jesus, to take up your cross and follow him, you are sending a message into the world that can be dividing. And look, like I get, I know from experience how one of the most difficult and terrifying things for believers is telling other people about your faith. I know how hard that can be and the weight you might feel. You know, like we get... We get worried about what other people will think about us. We worry they won't look at us the same. It'll, it'll affect our relationships. It'll affect our jobs. We worry that people will start, start referring to us as like the weird Christian guy or girl, right? And don't be the weird Christian guy or girl, please. It's not helping. But, but what I would say, and something for you to think about, is if you're with someone Put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, like, if I were them, how would I want to be told about Jesus? Just think about that. Or you could be even more direct. Like, hey, you know, I'm a Christian. I want to tell you about Jesus. How do you want to do that? You want to do it over a beer, coffee, over a game, whatever. Right? Just just some things to think about. And I will say that the gospel absolutely needs to be spoken. That's what the book of Romans tells us. It needs to be spoken out loud for people to hear it and understand it. But, but the way we live our lives should be reflective of Jesus. And by doing so, that will give off an aroma. So not only will people hear of Jesus in your conversations, but they will see it with your life. And as you reflect Jesus in your circles, this one's big. 
you will encourage other people who are also Christians to be more bold with their lives, thus leading them to want to reflect Jesus more, thus increasing the aroma where you are. And I know it's, it's dividing the message of Jesus. I know this firsthand. Like, I don't know if any of you have been in conversations or, or rooms where you've seen this play out where the message of Jesus is just like, the aroma of life to some and just like the worst thing that I've ever heard to others. Like I've had the same thing play out again and again. Um, this example where um, I was in, I was playing hockey in Florida and we had a team chaplain down there who'd come and speak to our entire team about once a month or so. And um, everyone would attend, I don't think because they actually necessarily wanted to hear from him, but it was kind of mandatory. Um, and so I remember one time he was speaking to us and he was just like bringing the gospel and it was like so powerful. And I remember just sitting there being like, yes, amen, this is so life-giving. And then I remember after going for lunch with a few of my teammates and we started talking about what we had just heard. And for the most part, and I'm gonna tone down the language a lot here, they were like, what a load of crap. What a bunch of garbage. Anyone else been there? Like, same message. For me, like, life-giving. So good. For others, nothing. It's like, it's like the way that my family watches the Canucks play. Same team, same message, completely different perspectives. And I, I have to believe, because the text says it, that this is probably happening right now. Like, if you're in this room or online or whenever you're listening to this, that this message is going to be the aroma of life to some or the fragrance of death to others. And let me just take the pressure off of you to having to perform perfectly in this realm. Our role as believers is to be obedient and to proclaim and reflect the gospel. Our role is not, thank God, to be the ones who transform someone's heart. That's God's role. We do not have the capabilities to change someone's heart, to lead them to salvation. God is going to do that. Yes, he's going to use us to do it, but ultimately God is in charge of that. And so the apostle Paul he's going to anticipate a follow-up question here. He's going to be like, with something as weighty and heavy as all of this, that our lives are to be sacrifices that give off an aroma pleasing to God, and our lives are to be ones that show the world who the real Savior is. Paul says, verse 16b, he says, who is sufficient for these things? So who is possibly up for this task then? Like talk about a weight upon your shoulders. And you might expect the answer to be like, well, none of us? Like that's way too big, way too heavy a burden for me to hold. But that's, that's not what Paul says. The final point that Paul is going to make in this chapter is that when you follow Jesus, when you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, and you are glorifying God wherever you go, 
and you are the means by which God is pleased by your life and other people discover who Jesus is, Paul says your life will now be empowered by the all-sufficiency of the living God. Of course, we ourselves are not sufficient for these things, but what Paul is saying is thanks be to God, not only for his grace, and not only because he's made us the aroma of himself that he is so pleased with, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God because he has made me able. He has made me competent for such an extraordinary, impossible call. And so, sure, church, if you follow Jesus, know that he, by his own personal power, will invest in you. And he will make you sufficient for the struggles of the day. He will give you power. He says we are sufficient. Why? Because we have been transformed and empowered by the presence of God within us. So what once was weak now is strong. He finishes in verse 17. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, no, but we are men and women of sincerity as commissioned by who? By God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We speak in Christ. We speak and live as people who are possessed by God himself. So our strength comes right out of the throne room of God. Our power is the same power that Jesus used to raise from death, and that is now alive and at work in us. And so Paul says, here's how we can be sufficient for this. Because we know him, We've denied all that is ourselves and chosen to follow him. And his power is within us. And so we can be profoundly motivated by his act of love for us in which he died on our behalf so that all of our sin and guilt and shame would be no more and would instead be replaced with his power. Praise God for that. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for just your finished work on the cross and the hope that we have in you. We thank you for your all-sufficiency that is at work in us because surely if it was up to us in our own power, we wouldn't stand a chance out there. We need you, Lord. We thank you that you're with us. And so I just lift up my brothers and sisters in this room and online today, and I just pray for boldness and courage for them for many things, to be able to deny themselves of anything that is from their flesh, anything they're choosing over you. Courage to choose you above all this world has to offer because you are the only satisfaction that is permanent. Everything else is temporal. And I pray for courage for my brothers and sisters who I know are thinking about people in their lives who they want to know Jesus. So I pray for courage and boldness for them as they just engage them in speech and as we read today, engage them with their lives. I just pray that our lives would give off a sweet-smelling aroma all around North Vancouver 
that would make your name known. And we thank you for the power that lives in us. Can't do it without you, God. Would you just remove anything that is of us and replace it with you? We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.